0: Our scripture today is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And it also is our Colossians Creed that we've been reading together. A creed is just an authoritative statement of belief. And so we're gonna have the words on either screen. And so I wanna invite you today to um, join with me and let's read this together with authority. We believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation,
1: Thank you, Heather. Uh, You can go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage or or open your scripture journals if you brought those with you to the passage that Heather just read, we're on page eight. And we're gonna talk about, we're gonna dive in particularly to two verses of those verses uh, that Heather read, verses 17 and 18. Jody and I have been married 18 years I had to think about that for just a second and uh, the first trip we ever uh, made together after we were married was we went to the Caribbean and we stayed on the island of St. Croix which is one of the U.S. Virgin Islands there's St. Thomas St. John but the lesser known of those is St. Croix I'd never been to the Caribbean before and I just remember getting off the plane, how, how blue the water was, like just how, that was my first impression. I, this is real, I thought it was just like doctored in the photoshops on the web pages, but the water actually looks like this. It's this bright, brilliant, clear, blue and it just took my breath away. And in fact, the, the place we stayed, I, I have a photo. This is a little uh, show and tell this morning. You know, this is where we stayed on St. Croix and you can kind of see the blueness of the water. And I just remember every morning just looking out that view and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is you know, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And particularly the water is what I couldn't take my, my eyes off of. Well, you know, after a day or two or three or four of that, we, we were there about a week. I, you still realize how beautiful it was, but it didn't take your breath away as much. You know, it kind of loses the edge because you get used to it a little bit. Still wonderful still beautiful but about day five or so we took an excursion and we got in a boat and we went out to this little island called buck island we have a, a photo of buck island that i'll show you uh somebody in the last service said it looked exactly like gilligan's island <laughs> you know. Oh, so that, that's, that's where we were, but fortunately for a lot shorter than the Gilligan uh, folks were. But we, we went out there. Now you don't really go on the island. For those of you, I don't know if anyone's ever been down there or not, but the area there is a, a national uh, reef. It's a national protected area and people go down there to snorkel and scuba dive and it, it's beautiful. Well, I'd never been snorkeling. You know, I just knew okay, we'll try this out. And we got over where the boat was and you can look down and kind of see there's, I think there's some stuff under there. The water's kind of clear so you can see some stuff under there. But it's not until you, submerge under, you know, with your mask on where you can see under the water that all of a sudden everything comes into clear focus. So I want to show you a picture. This is what we saw. Now, uh, I don't have a underwater camera so those first two photos you saw were actually my photos this one is a professional one but I'm telling you guys it looked just like that and there's another photo too that I'll show you that that that, this is what's down there I mean it's just down there waiting for people to see and I remember coming and just seeing that and just wanting to gasp and it was all I could do not to gasp because it's not a good idea to gasp when you're submerged and, and Jody and I went under together. We came back up. You know, we took our snorkels out. We're like, "Did you see that? You know? And did you see this? And did you see that? And you see the fish, and you see the, the coral." And, and we thought, let's let's go back down. So you know, we dove back down, and we kept going up and down, up and down, with uh, our snorkeling as long as the, the guide on the excursion would allow us to. And and I just remember it would, just took my breath away. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And here's what struck me later: I knew the water was beautiful. I'd been admiring it all all week. I'd even been swimming in it, but until I dove down, until I could really see what's there, I hadn't really seen it, had I? Now, here's the analogy. You get to certain parts of scripture that you read through and you're like, man, that's great. That creed that we just said together from Colossians 1 that we've been saying together every week that we're encouraging you all to memorize as we go through this this text, we're gonna keep saying it together throughout this study. It's amazing. It's like, wow, what an amazing uh, passage of scripture. But until you dive down, Until you go down there to see everything that's there in every phrase and every word, then it can take your breath away. And I've been praying this morning that there'd be some things that you would see in God's word like this that would just cause you to gasp a little bit because it's all focused on Jesus, isn't it? And what I know is anytime somebody sees Jesus for who he really is, they're changed. Think about the disciples. They're just regular fishermen in Galilee, and then they see Jesus. They come to know him, and they're never the same. Think about Saul, who was just, well, he wasn't just. He was an incredible Hebrew scholar. He was a persecutor of the church, and he was on his way one day to persecute Christians when Jesus appeared to him, and he saw Jesus, and Saul became Paul as he, reoriented his identity. You cannot get to know Jesus. You can't really see Jesus. I'm not talking about just kind of knowing some things about Jesus or believing some things about Jesus. I'm talking about encountering Jesus. You cannot get to know him, see him for his glory without being transformed. You can't do it. No one ever has. And so in, in love this morning, I just want to say this to you. If you claim to know Jesus, but you've not been radically altered by him, I'm not sure you've really seen him. I'm not sure that you have. I'm not sure you've really met him, not in the sense that that this text could take us to this morning. And there's no better place, I don't think, maybe in all the scripture to dive down and see what's there. When we think about the person of Jesus Christ, this person that we've been singing songs about, that we claim to follow, this person that we believe in, let's look at him. Let's see the beauty and the power and the glory of the one and only God in human flesh. So this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to dive into two verses, verses 17 and 18 of the text. And as we dive in, as we dive down deep, I I am praying that the Spirit would keep taking our breath away as we encounter Jesus Christ through this text. So if you have your journal with you or if you have an open Bible with you and you have a pen or pencil, I'm gonna encourage you to follow along. We're gonna mark up the text. Obviously, you don't have to do this. This is up to you. I just think this is a great way to to engage the scripture with more than just your mind. Uh, But if you have a pen or pencil, the first thing I wanna do in our text is I wanna encourage you as I read these two verses, 17 and 18, to put a box around every direct reference to Jesus. You'll see this on the screen as well and you can kind of follow along. We'll put boxes around those images. So verse 17 says this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Those are the verses we're going to dig down into this morning, and you see there's a whole lot of direct references to Jesus. He's all over this text, which is true throughout this five-verse hymn. Uh, If you were here last week, Lloyd kicked off the study of this Christological passage by saying, it's probably a hymn. We know it's at least poetic. That's the way the, the words are structured in Greek. It's a poem It was likely set to music. Paul himself either authored it, you know, through the Spirit's inspiration, or he pulled some existing things that were already around the church and put them together in this one unified area research I've done, I happen to believe Paul wrote this. I I think that that the Spirit was just speaking through him, and it became a hymn of that early church. But you see how Jesus is all over it. He's all throughout these two verses we're looking at today. There's another word, key word in here. It's a couple words in English, but it's one word in Greek. It's all things, and I I want you to, to see this. So take your pen or pencil and put brackets in verses 17 and 18 whenever you see the words all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then look down at verse 18, there's the word everything. That's the same word in Greek as all things. So bracket that one as well. All things, all things, everything. Now, if it's the same word in Greek, why did they choose a different English word? Probably just for vocal variety. And as you and I know, all things, everything means essentially the same thing. What does it mean? All things means all things <laughs> talked about Lloyd talked about last week it's everything you can see everything you can't see it's visible invisible in fact if you look back up at the passage that Lloyd guided us through last week 15 and 16 you'll see all things in there again let's go ahead and put brackets around those as well verse uh there it is verse 16 for by him all things were created and rulers authorities all things were created look down at next week's text you see it again in verse 20, through him to reconcile all things. So I wanted you to see that so that you can see this idea of all things, everything, Jesus Christ is right in the middle of. He has power over, authority over. There is nothing that is not, there's nothing that is not under his authority and his power and his ultimate control. So that's a key word in this. All right, now that we've marked up the text a little bit, so some things will pop out of it. I wanna walk through our two verses, phrase by phrase. We're gonna learn five truths about Jesus. And I want you to think of each of these truths as a snorkel dive, (laughs) because you're gonna see something a little bit different Every time, you're going to see something amazing. You're going to see something beautiful. And as I thought about how can I help them learn this and remember this, I was cognizant of the fact that we've got all kinds of different learning styles in the room. You know, some of you are dialed into all the academic intellectual stuff, and I love that kind of thing, right? we, We teach that way a lot at fellowship. Some of you are more artistically minded, and you connect in other ways. So what I want to do is, as we walk through these five truths, we're going to illustrate these for you. Not particularly creatively, because I'm not an artist, but just in a way that might stir you a little bit. And and feel free, those of you that are doodlers and artists, and draw this, make it better. You know, however you want to do this, this is your opportunity to engage this scripture. Uh, But here's what I want you to do. The first thing we're going to learn is in this first phrase in verse 17, he is before all things. We're going to illustrate that. Here's how I want you to illustrate that. We'll draw it on on the margin of the page. Just start with the word all things. And we're going to put that word in all capital letters, and we're gonna put it in brackets just to, to remind us, hey, this comes straight from the text. Now, above that word, all things, I want you to draw a little cross because what this phrase is saying is Jesus is before all things. So we're literally gonna visualize that. He is before, Jesus represented there at the cross, before all things. What does it mean for Jesus to be before all things? Two things, because the word before in Greek has double meaning, it means he is chronologically before and it means he has precedent over. Let's talk about each. Chronologically before. What this means, and the Bible talks about it in other places too, is Jesus did not come into existence in the stable when he was born. That's the moment that Jesus was incarnated. But Jesus is pre-existent. Jesus has always been as one of the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. So in, earlier in the passage, Lloyd taught last week, Jesus is the agent of creation. He's there in the beginning. He precedes all the other creation. That's what Paul is saying here. And I know this blows our mind. In fact, if it blows our mind, think about people in the first century that actually like, saw Jesus in the flesh and, and were eating with him and joking with him and talking with him. For them to imagine, to think that, that, that he's pre, pre-existent, he's always been, it doesn't make sense. Like we don't even have a category for that. In fact, there's this, um, I was going to say amusing, but it actually is a terrifying moment in the life of Jesus when he's having a conversation with some Pharisees and he's saying some things that really kind of riling them up, you know, because Jesus... would talk like he's God, because he was, you know? And these guys were looking at a human being, and they're like, you're talking like you're God. And at one point in time, they they said this, you don't think you're greater than our father Abraham, do you? You know, because Jesus was telling like, he can give them things that Abraham couldn't. And like, you don't think you're greater than Abraham, do you? Like, who do you think you are? You're not greater than our father Abraham. And listen to what Jesus answers them. He says, before Abraham was, I am And that word, I am, is the word for Yahweh, it's God. It's the the proper name of God. And and you know what they did? They they did the logical thing from their perspective. They tried to kill Jesus. Because according to the law, if someone's gonna claim to be God, you're gonna gonna snuff that out right away. And and Jesus, it wasn't his time, so he escapes from there. But, But do you see what a big deal this is for Jesus to be preeminent? So preeminent means first in chronology, It also means first in priority. He's the first among all things. He's above it all. He's before all. So there's our first truth about Jesus. He is before all things. Let's keep going. The next phrase, and in him, all things hold together. You thought the first one was big. This is at least as big. Here's how we're gonna illustrate this going back to our drawing. I, I wanna invite you to, to take where those brackets are and go ahead, let's make that into a cross and, and you know, you'll, you'll see it illustrated here but let's come up above that little cross and then all the way down and what this represents is not only is Jesus before all things but all things are in him. Like He, he holds it all together. He contains it. Now this is amazing, is it not? If you were here a few weeks ago, when we started off the service, I began with this analogy: that for hundred or for 100 years, scientists have been trying to discover a unifying theory of everything a set of simple equations that could explain everything in existence from the smallest molecules to the gravitational forces in the in, in space-time continuum. And, and they're in conflict with each other. They, 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 they can't find a, a single theory that sort of brings the other theories together. What Paul is saying is theologically, Jesus is the theory of everything. And that is this verse. We, like, we, we've gotten to ground zero of that analogy this morning. Paul is saying, in Jesus Christ, everything makes sense. Everything has a center point. Everything comes together. Uh, Biblical commentator David Garland puts it this way. Jesus is the key who unlocks the meaning and purpose of the universe. Another scholar wrote this, which I really like. Jesus keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. He keeps it all. He holds it all. It has a unifying center and it's not blowing apart in chaos because Jesus. Now I, we can't explain that humanly speaking with our brains. This is what Paul is saying. Theologically, Jesus is the theory of everything. He's the one who sustains it all. He's the one who makes sense of it all. Here's a couple more analogies. If you know, For all of us into technology, we can identify with this one. Jesus is the operating system. So, you know, I don't have my phone with me. I do have an iPad, but no, nothing, none of these apps on my device make sense without an operating system to unify them. Paul's saying Jesus is the operating system. Here's another analogy. If you want to go in a different direction, Jesus is the glue that holds it all together, that keeps things from being disintegrated. Jesus is the center. He holds it all together. So truth number two, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. He is the center of everything in existence. Here's what this means. No creature or piece of the creation is entirely autonomous from Jesus. You might be living like you are. You might be imagining that you are. You might, in in your twisted mind, and I say twisted in actually a loving way because I've got a depraved mind and myself want to be autonomous from Jesus sometimes but you are not you are not everything that lives is dependent upon him for life and breath and meaning he's the operating system he's the glue that holds it all together he's the center of all things and in him all things hold together now we've gotten through two there's three more but what I really want you to see now is the the larger poem, which is 15 to 20 that we recited earlier, has a halfway point and we have arrived at it. So it's six verses long, three verses we've covered so far, 15, 16, 17, three verses we still have to go, 18 we'll cover today, 19, 20 next week. Here's why I make a point of the halfway point. Up to this point, this poem or hymn has been all about the creation The rest of the poem or hymn is all about the new creation. The new creation. Keep that in mind as we go. It'll make a lot more sense. Look at the third phrase in our text this morning. It's the start of verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, church. Now, before we draw it, I just want to say this. What does the church have to do with new creation? Everything. We just lose sight of that. The church is actually Jesus' first act of new creation. And I'll explain that in just a second, but first let's illustrate it. How are we gonna illustrate the church in here? Let's go ahead and put the the drawing up. Here's what I want you to do, is draw a little triangle like a steeple of the church that's gonna connect the cross at the top to that bottom, and then draw a little door. Can Can you see the church inside the cross? Do you see it? I'm not getting a lot of response. I hope you see it okay good good I was worried about this one I was like I don't know if they'll be able to see that or not but that's probably me being overly worried so there's there's circumscribed inside all things that Jesus kind of is, is there we are like there's the church now how is that new creation how is this new creation in Colossians and in other places Paul describes the church as the new humanity the new humanity, and that's specific language because he's cre- he's going back to a Genesis motif. So think about it this way. In the first creation, mankind was the pinnacle of creation. You remember the sixth day God created man and women? Man and woman, singular. Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, it is very good. So all the other days, it is good, it is good, it is good. He creates mankind, it is very good. He gives them Dominion rule to rule the earth under God's authority. That's the first creation. In the new creation, guess what? The pinnacle of new creation is the new humanity, which is the church, the body of Christ. Do You see, we, not just in this room, but the body of Christ, universal, all the believers in Jesus for 2,000 years, Everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are the first act of new creation. We are a new humanity, Paul would say. So he'd say Jesus is the head of a new humanity, which is one of the reasons Paul loves the body analogy. It's like a giant human being. Jesus is the head and everyone else, we're a part of a new humanity, the first act of the new creation that one day new creation will envelop the whole creation for now. We're it. Jesus is the head. We're the first act of new creation. Head means to have authority over and to be the source of. So just as in English, our English word head can mean both of those things. Think of, you know, the, the head directs the body, that's authority over, but you could also have the head of a of a river, for example, the source of. Same thing in Greek. Head means authority over, but also the source of. So Jesus not only directs and governs the body, the church, he also gives it life and strength. Think about it this way. Um, if I had an accident, the doctors could amputate any of my extremities and I would hopefully still live. But if I lost my head, I'm done. It's, it's the one thing we can't live without. And, and this is where I want to apply, apply this to us. I want to be not overly critical in these comments, but, but I have to say, when I see and hear many of the things that are happening in the church in our country in these days, in these, this day and age, I grieve because I believe so many of the local bodies of Christ have lost the connection with the head of the body who is Jesus Christ. Do you follow this? I believe there are churches of all sizes, all around us and all throughout the country that that are slowly dying because they've made the church about all kinds of other things and they've neglected the head. They've neglected Jesus Christ. Now, the model in the New Testament is you have a universal church, everyone who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. He's the head, but you've always had local expressions of the body of Christ where individual members of the body come together and join as part of a local body, local expression. That's biblical, men and women. That's the model, that the way the church spread across the New Testament. And so you being here this morning, you being a part of this local body really matters. Sure, you're a part of the universal church, whether or not you belong to any particular church. But the biblical model is to be a part of a local body. Why? So that we can join together in worship. We can celebrate the table. We can participate in baptism. We can come under the authority of God's word together. That's what the local church does that you cannot do on your own, all those things, apart from it. So being a part of a local body really matters. But here's the thing that grieves me. The church is not designed to be something you attend or something you consume. It's designed to be something you're a part of. See, it's a, it's, it's a body with Jesus as the head. And so, you know, we've got a a part of the body here, a local expression across the parking lot, Brentwood Baptist, praise God, local expression down the road. We've got church in the city, local expression up in Nashville, all over. We've got a lot of churches In this place. And the degree that these individual expressions are mindful of who is the head of Jesus Christ, that it is about Jesus Christ, his priority, his mission, not our own little individual institutions, that's the degree that the church will continue to thrive and live. To the degree that we make it about ourselves or our agendas or our own wants and needs, we see church more as something we consume. That's the place where we're going to be dying. Listen to the way uh, one commentator put it. This is harsh, but I think it's helpful. So I, I share this with myself and you in love. The church does not exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure its institutional survival, but to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ, the head. That's true for the universal church. That's true right here for Fellowship Bible Church. I don't want to be a part of a church that is severed from the head. You don't either, because it's not life-giving. There's no life in it. So this is why we're spending eight months in this one little letter, because you can't get away from Jesus in this. This is why we're spending a whole three weeks on six verses of the text because this is ground zero for understanding Jesus. This is why we recently re-articulated our mission statement to be helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus because there is no other life anywhere else. We're aligning our mission with Christ's mission. We're aligning our everything around Jesus the head. Now, was that a soapbox? I felt like that was a little bit of a soapbox. I'm gonna come back down off it now. If you understand that Jesus is in process of forming a new humanity, which is what you and I are a part of as this body of Christ, the next part of verse 18 will make perfect sense. Take a look. Look at at the next phrase. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And by the way, those go together, beginning, firstborn from the dead, you have to link them in your mind. Talking about resurrection here talking about resurrection not the genesis one beginning but the beginning of the resurrection like jesus is the first and we're going to follow him later now how are we going to illustrate this you see that little let's go ahead and put it on the screen that little doorway at the bottom of the cross that's you know the doorway of the church let's actually turn that into something different can we do that illustrate that if we can there it is we're going to make that the tomb okay do you see that boom the glory in eminence the stone is rolled away there you go the, that, this is the core of who we are as a church. We are resurrected people that are waiting for our own resurrection. Our identity is a new humanity where death no longer has power and we're waiting still. We're living in this in-between tension, but our identity is a new humanity. Old humanity, no escape from death. Jesus came and changed that. Jesus came and conquered death, threw open the gates of death to open a door, a door that's a tomb that's opening so that you and I will enter into life that begins now in part and will be full when he returns completely. Do you you see how incredible this is? How we are the beginning of the new creation. I mean, Jesus is, and we're following him. We're the first act of new creation. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in the message. He says, Jesus is leading the resurrection parade. It's a good image. It's a good image. Jesus is the front. We're all going to come in behind him. By the way, there's some, um, for for those of you that, that like to dig down into the words and the structure and these kinds of things, there's some really cool symmetry in this hymn. If you look up back at verse 15, you'll see the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look down at verse 18, firstborn from the dead. Paul is saying he's the firstborn of the original creation and he's the firstborn of the new creation. The original creation governed by, ultimately governed by sin and death because of sin into the world. Jesus dealt with sin, Jesus dealt with death. So now he's the firstborn from there into this new creation. You see, this, this is a brilliant man that wrote this, a brilliant God who authored it through a brilliant man. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul foresees a day when death will be so power, powerless over us, we will mock it. We don't mock death yet. You've been at a funeral lately. We're not mocking death. Death still has a sting. But our identity is such that we know there will be a day that we will say this, Paul is saying, on that day, death is swallowed up in victory and we will say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's like, what you got now, death? You got nothing, death. That's our future. Our identity now is a new humanity. Death no longer has power over us. Our reality is death still stings, but there's a point in time that our identity and our reality will converge in a fully new creation. Death will be no more. And we will look back and we will scoff at it. You see the beauty of the gospel. All right, we've gone through four phrases. Got one, one more to go. The last phrase of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent is a Greek verb used only one time in the New Testament right here. It means to be first, to have first place, or to hold the highest rank in a group. Jesus holds the highest rank in what group? Answer it. The highest rank over everything, all things, everything, all things. So here's how we're going to illustrate this. Just at the very top of that cross, go ahead and draw a crown. Draw a crown at the top of that cross to illustrate he's king over it all. And yeah, you can kind of draw a little emanating glory from there. Do you see? He... He's preeminent over the, the church. He's preeminent over all things, the creation. He's preeminent over death. <laughs> do, you, do you see this? Are you able to, in this moment, say, wow, just a little bit. Just give, give me a little bit. Wow, wow. You don't have to say it out loud. That's silly. Uh, but maybe not. We should say that. We should have our breath taken away if you actually believe all this to be true. Now, Abraham Kuyper was a a Dutch theologian and and he wrote this quote that I always think about when I read this, this verse. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. Not one square inch. That means if we could dive down to the deepest trench of the ocean, Jesus is king there. Anybody ever has a privilege and and crazy guts to go to the top of Mount Everest? Jesus is king there. If we could somehow take a spaceship and, and go faster than the speed of light and get to the furthest star in our universe that our most powerful telescope has observed, Jesus is king there. This is everything, it's all things. His kingdom has no end. Now, I'd like to lead us into reflecting on what this means for us now. What, what all of that that we, that we looked at, that we talked about, that we studied, what does it mean for us? If Jesus is king over every square inch of creation, then he must be king over every square inch of you and me. There's a sense that he is, like you can't help it. But in God's divine, mysterious, sovereign grace, he gives us, he allows us, I believe, the freedom to live as if that's not true. You and I all the time live as if he's not king over us. Not really, not really. I mean, we'll give lip service to it on Sunday mornings, but not really, Here's how this works, I think. From the moment you're born, you instinctively center your life around you. Like you, you, you cannot help it. it. It's all you can do. It's, it's the fallen, selfish human nature that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's the, your soul is just born curved upon itself. And so as you grow up, you know, you, you continue to send, tend to, to center your life on you. And you know, when you're a, at some point in your life, especially if you have siblings, you realize, oh, other people exist. You know? And so then your instinct is to fight. Your instinct is to bite and grab when you don't have something that you want. That's, you know, anybody had parented toddlers lately? That, that, that's what they do. And then you get older and you realize, okay, that's actually not the best way to get what I, what I want because that's the best way to get a, a, a bottom that's hurting or you know, so, you know, <laughs> however your parents disciplined you or you know, time out or whatever it was. And at some point you realize, all right, I, I have to live a little bit differently, but you still kind of have you as on the throne of your heart so to speak, and if in God's grace, and I pray for this for for us, in God's grace at some point in life, he allows us to come to the end of ourselves where we just can't make life work anymore with us on the throne. Some of y'all are not there yet. Some of you have been there. Some of us, maybe you're in process. And if you encounter Jesus, when you encounter Jesus at that point in your life, when you actually see him, when you understand who he is, when you understand what what, what a terrible God you make, and the fact that you actually need a king, that's when you will open yourself up and say, would you be who I know you actually are theologically, but I've kept you from being practically. And that's when you really begin to transform. Now, when you get to that place, when you actually see Jesus, and this morning's one of those places because if you've been listening or not, the word of God has been proclaimed over you. The truth of scripture has been spoken and the truth of scripture clearly states he's preeminent over everything you included. And so you really have two choices every time you come across that truth, that Jesus is king over all, including you. Option number one, you can try to diminish him. And you can do that in a number of different ways. You can keep him at arm's length. You can like, go to lunch really quickly and think about other things. You, know, you can distract yourself. Uh, you, you, we're all busy, so that's pretty easy to do. Another way that we try to diminish Jesus, and, and this one's particularly evil, I think, is we try to appease him with our own little righteousness without ever actually really opening our hearts to him. We like throw him little breadcrumbs. Say, I'm in church. I'm doing some good things. Like, here's, here's some breadcrumbs. You know, it's like, stay close enough where I know you're there, Jesus, but not close enough that you actually... Transform deeply who I am. Another way we can do this is we just kind of put them in our pockets and we pull them out when we need a little inspiration. I heard a lady one time say, "I was having a hard day on Tuesday, so I had to get my Jesus juice." You see, this—it's like pull out a pocket and you take a little Jesus juice drink. Let me get refreshed. You see. Option one, you can try to diminish him. All those strategies, you know, I I forgot one. You can dismiss him as Jesus is a crutch for the weak-minded. I'm not weak-minded. I don't need him. There's all these kinds of ways of diminishing Jesus. That's option number two. Option number one. Option number two is this. It's the only other option. You can fall on your knees and say, my God and my King. With all the weight that that entails. My my King, my Sovereign, my Lord. My Lord. That's why everybody kept calling Jesus Lord. It's not just a title. They're saying master, my king. Here's a way of thinking about this. When you encountered this truth about Jesus, that he is sovereign, he is king, he is everything, and in him all things hold together, you will either come under him or you will try to get him under you. Those are your only two options. One of those leads to life. One of them does not. So here's what I find in my own heart. I am sometimes fooled into thinking that what I really want is to have access to Jesus, but to keep him a bit on the periphery. See if you identify with this. I can think of my life as sort of a subset of like pie wedges And I'm kind of in the center by default, maybe. And I've got my family life here and I've got my pastoring, you know, my professional life here. I've got my friends here. I've got my physical health here and I've got my spiritual life. And, you know, when you're really on on in your spiritual life, you might say that's the biggest part of the pie. Can I say this to us with love and concern? If Jesus truly is the center of the universe, He doesn't fit into our pie wedge. If he's the center of everything, then trying to fit him in alongside our our physical health and hobbies is is foolish, it's unsatisfying, and it's exhausting. What, What happens if you take out the operating system of a computer or device and you try to put in a different operating system that's not designed to work around glitches? Anybody have any glitches in your life? You don't have to raise your hand, I will. Anybody stumbling along some things, a relationship that's not working right now, a habit that you can't get around, uh, something in your job that you're afraid of, a financial thing that's just... And you having glitches? Jesus is not a supplement who comes to round you out. He's the center of everything. He's the center of it all. And his grace... He gives us the choice. We can live like he is and find life. And and not that your life will be perfect, but you're gonna begin to sort of say, oh, I'm starting to experience what the scripture talks about. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Or you can kind of pretend he's not and keep yourself there. Those are the two choices. And I wanna give you an invitation this morning. And in this invitation, I wanna go ahead and ask the ushers if they'll start passing out the elements of the table. And here's the invitation. And and I I hope, I know there's distractions with with these men and women walking around passing the trays, but I hope you can dial in for this part because I think it's really important. Jesus has the authority to force you under his rule. He does not operate that way. He does not operate that way. He's more mysterious than that. He's more relational than that. He's... He gives you an invitation. Men and women, here's the invitation. He invites you to a table. Now, a king doesn't invite you to the table if he doesn't want you to sit with him, if he doesn't want you to be engaged with him, involved with him relationally, if he doesn't want you to be a part of his table of fellowship. The king is inviting you to a table. If you desire To be with Jesus, the head of the table. If you've put your faith in Him at any point in time to forgive your sins, to open the gates of the grave for you, if you've put your trust in Him as your fullness, your salvation, take the bread, take the cup, get around the table with us this morning. Maybe this morning for you, it's for the very first time. I don't even know what this means. I'm not ready to join a church. You don't have to join a church participate in this body if you have faith through Jesus Christ that you believe that He lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved. His resurrection opens the door for newness of life for you. And this morning, he's inviting you around a table. By faith in me, Jesus would say, come and be with me. Let me provide for your deepest need, which is the darkness of your own heart. Let me do the work there. Let me transform you from the inside out. Take the bread. Take the cup this morning. Wherever you are, if it's the first time in your life, maybe you put your trust in Jesus. We want to invite you around the table now as the ushers are still passing the trays out I'm going to say a few more things and then we're going to partake of the elements together this all powerful being who is at the very center of the universe has set a table for us he desires for us to be at the table with him not just as subjects but even theologically as co-heirs that's what the Bible will go on to teach in the rest of the New Testament and the way in is by faith It's by faith. So I want you to think about what we're going to be doing as we're eating and drinking. We're going to engage all five of our senses, right? We're going to be embodying what we believe. So the bread and cup that you hold in your hands right now, they are not your salvation. But they're a physical, tangible reminder of your salvation. And so to take and eat this morning is a physical, tangible way that you can express your faith that you can live out your faith, that you can embody your faith in Jesus Christ. So by taking the bread and cup this morning, here's what you're saying. I believe Jesus is my sustenance. He is my portion. He is my satisfaction. He is the true food that satisfies my hunger and the true drink that quenches my thirst. You are essentially saying, I need Jesus not just on the periphery. I need Jesus to sustain me. I need him at the center. And so we have an opportunity this morning to do that. What you hold in your hands, a tangible expression of God's provision for you and his presence for you. And so I invite you to take the bread. And in remembrance of the body of Christ broken for us and in joyful anticipation of the bread, we will eat with him around another table, the table to come. Let us eat together. And now I invite you to take the cup, take it in remembrance of his blood shed for you And take it in joyful anticipation of the cup that we will drink with him at the resurrection. Let's drink together. Amen. We're gonna express this great truth in one more way this morning. We're gonna sing together. So stand to your feet and let us worship the risen Jesus Christ.